Digiday podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I'm the senior media editor at Digiday. And I'm Keely Barber, media editor at Digiday. Kaylee, you had the interview this week and you spoke with Susan de Carava, who is the president of the News Guild of New York, uh, which is uh, works with a lot of editorial unions, including the New York Times, if I'm not mistaken, which has been pretty active late. It actually feels like the whole newsroom union space has been really active for a few years now, but over the past year, um, it just feels like there's been all kinds of activity from the wire cutter strike to, um, you know, the New York times, you know, holding their walkout and, and beyond, you know, just the times. I know both of those are, um, within the times, but what did Susan have to say about like what's spurring what seems to be all this activity right now? Yeah, so actually The Times is a great example that we touch on quite a bit in this episode. I kicked off the interview with her really asking that exact question, like the past few years really have been active um, in the unionization space. And part of that is because of the pandemic causing people to feel a little less secure in their jobs. Um, You know, there was that period of time where reporters were covering really heavy things and it was a stressful environment for them, but they had to keep doing it. But, you know, being home and being in a period of time where companies weren't the most secure financially caused a lot of uncertainty for journalists and editors. And that led to a lot of unionization act uh, activity. But then, you know, a few months later during a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests um, and, you know, the events that transpired with uh, the death of George Floyd and several other people, that Susan explains that there were a couple different factors leading into um, more unionized employees really wanting more protections when they were, you know, in the front lines covering protests and needing more, you know, protective gear, for example. But then also internally in in the company, uh, you know, environment wanted to feel like there was more support and more equity, um, you know, themselves, like in their day to day. And so we talk a lot about some of those factors um, from a couple years ago and how those are still really impacting the cause for unionization today. Um, But yeah, in the last year, there's been a lot of push to returning to the office. And Susan explains that, Companies really can't mandate that without running into some legal issues on the union side. So really what that has looked like is, you know, employees at the Times refusing to go into the office. And that just happened a couple of weeks ago. So there's um, a lot of factors that are leading into, you know, media workers wanting to have more rights. Uh, Some of it's the financial situation in the economy has caused them to want better pay. Recently, I think it's the continued push for more DE&I in their companies, as well as whether or not they can return to the office if they want to return to the office, if they want to stay home, and currently just making sure they're paid enough for what they're doing. I mean, it feels like the biggest recourse that editorial employees who are part of unions have is to go on strike. Is is that as simple as folks just picking a date and saying, all right, you know, don't show up in the office or show up outside the office with your picket signs? Or is there more to it than that? Yeah, so there's definitely more to it. But the way that Susan kind of frames 
the concept of striking is really rooting it in community and figuring out what are those common struggles that everyone's facing and feeling so that when you are approaching a, um, a strike or some sort of demonstration, you're really you know, united on what those reasons are for doing it because it can be scary, right, for employees to just stop working. You know, what does that mean for your job security? What does that mean for your pay? Um, so really starting with community is the biggest thing that she talks about. But she also talked about uh, doing the first strike school for the members of uh, the News Guild of New York. So in that, they learned more about everything from like communication tactics and negotiation skills to, you know, alternatives to a, you know, full-blown strike, but more like demonstrating in the office or, you know, finding a, an offsite and uh, figuring out where the execs are and, you know, speaking to them in person because you can track them down kind of thing. Um, so there's different strategies for, you know, those physical demonstrations that aren't exactly a strike but when you're leading up to those things community is like the core thing that she talks about needing to have interesting all right I'm excited to hear this conversation so i'll let you take it away thanks kelly thanks tim susan thank you so much for joining us on the podcast how are you i'm good and thank you so much for having me i'm delighted to be here and to talk about all things worker related it's very near and dear to my heart yeah, I think this episode is coming at a really good time and important time because I feel like there's been a ton of news lately about different unions um, either forming or uh, different, you know, conversations that are going on um, right now. But before we get into that and some of the trends that you're seeing and some of the, you know, strategies that you're seeing on that end of things, I did want to ask, um, kind of set the stage for everyone, how many unions are currently represented by the News Guild of New York right now? And whether that's been a, a growing kind of uptick over the past couple of years since you've been president? It's so funny that you asked that question because that should be the easiest question in the world to answer. Um, I believe we're up to 54 workplaces that we represent right now. I may be off by a, uh, a number or two, but really that's reflective of how much organizing has been happening. Not just within our own union at the News Guild of New York, but I think across the country there has been, and it's been documented and talked about, a real upsurge in interest in kind of rebalancing the scales and between worker and boss, between employee and employer. And that has naturally led to an uptick of interest and uh, follow-through, frankly, in organizing and workers forming union as unions as a way to really um, focus their demands and hold the companies that employ them accountable for the things that they say they do, but then don't actually follow through on. And to make sure, in fact, that they have a seat at the table. I mean, that's ultimately what unions do. They give workers a seat at the table. They allow them to hold their bosses accountable. Um, and so that's been happening at such a great pace, <laughs> particularly over the last, uh, you know, two and a half, three years that I've been president at the News Guild of New York, um, that uh, we've just seen... Uh, the beginnings of a sea change throughout the industry. And I'm really excited about that. And I think it means good things for all workers within media and, and uh, journalism. Yeah. And to your point, I feel like it has been well documented that there has been a lot of coverage about, you know, unionization and workers seeking out, you know, representation. I think, you know, back in the earlier days of COVID, that was kind of around, 
some of the uncertainties with what was happening in the economy and what that meant for job security and a lot of furloughs were taking place, uh, layoffs were taking place. I think that definitely is, um, you know, one of the catalysts there. But I am curious, you know, over the past couple of years, have there been other reasons for why this kind of uptick has been happening? Um, you know, have people just been more open about talking about their desires or or like needs really in, in their jobs? Or what are some of the other kind of reasons that you see this pace quickening? Well, you you nailed it, Kaylee, when you talked about the precarity, particularly in journalism, particularly in the media industry. And it's certainly an issue that has bedeviled the profession for decades. Uh, I think journalism and journalists have borne the brunt of uh, media consolidation that started, you know, many, many years ago. Uh, more and more corporations looking to turn news into content and then monetize it at the expense of the people that create the content or who report the news. Um, And uh, they've been looking, frankly, to line CEO pockets, line the pockets of investors and hedge funds. When you think about Alden Capital and Tribune or Gannett, uh, which owns 17%, I believe, of the national media market, uh, and the way that they have squeezed their newsrooms and therefore squeezed the communities that those newsrooms serve uh, is really gross and appalling. And, you know, you know, you're a journalist. Journalists don't do this work because they think they're going to end up rich. (laughs) You know, it's a calling. It's a profession. And it's something that people do because they want to tell stories. They want to hold power accountable. They want to document and record culture. They want to make sure that the voices that are in their communities or in the professions or in the areas of society that they are most connected to are heard. And they really function as the first draft of history. So I think this issue about uh, workers kind of rising to the moment and challenging long-held norms about, you know, who gets to really decide what's important and who uh, journalism serves um, has been going on for a long time. It's not something that just happened over the past three or four years, Um, particularly media consolidation, I think, and how that has really happened on the backs of workers and media uh, and editorial jobs uh, is really key there. So that precarity uh, responding to mass layoffs, responding to newsroom close, closings have been has been a real factor in people deciding to unionize. Going along with that, though, are other things that impact folks' ability to stay in the profession and their ability to make a living out of it, not just because they're getting fair compensation, but also because they feel welcome. Uh, in addition to economic precarity, the other issues that we have seen repeatedly come up across the newsrooms where we inter- where we represent people, but as just in general across the industry, uh, both within New York, but also with our parent union, the News Guild International, so across the country, are issues of diversity, equity, inclusion uh, in our newsrooms. And I don't think this is an issue that is um, unique to media. But uh, it is one that people have been grappling with across our society, frankly, for decades. Um, I think the most recent kind of iteration of this, we saw really, really uh, pick up steam with the murders of Mike Brown and George Floyd and several other uh, people who really like sparked uh, a wave of consciousness about social justice, civil rights, and how we as a society are addressing these issues. And our members were on the front lines of those um, demonstrations and concerns, and they found themselves in two really kind of 
unthinkable positions. One is that they weren't getting the support from their employers in terms of uh, just physical support, you know, uh, protective gear, being able to report back uh, what was happening in a way that was safe for them and safe for the folks that they were covering. And then second, turning around and looking at their own newsrooms and realizing that media is still very white and very male. And it's really shocking at this point that that is the current state of play, particularly when you think about the really strong history, and then this gets back to the issue of the communities that journalism serves, the strong history of independent news within the African-American community, within the Latino community, uh, uh, and across the country. So this is a core issue because if your newsrooms don't look like the communities that you serve, and at this point, our kind of broadly speaking national com- community is, is immensely diverse via ethnicity, age, religion, um, orientation. Uh, uh, it, it, it means that we have taken on the responsibility of holding these media companies accountable for the ways in which their newsrooms do a disservice to the news that they're supposed to cover and the communities that they cover. And that's something that our members want. They want to cover the news in the fairest way possible. They want to be in the midst of what is happening. Uh, And they want their newsrooms to provide opportunities for their Black colleagues, for their their colleagues of color. Uh, And we have seen several years into this kind of national conversation about inequity uh, and fairness that while a lot of media corporations give lip service to correcting past wrongs, to making sure that they are seeking diverse candidates uh, uh, when they're looking to hire reporters and editors and uh, videographers and all of the jobs that media requires in this day and age, they're not actually doing it. We don't see the results in our newsrooms. And when they do hire uh, Black reporters or reporters of color, the structures that create inequity within those newsrooms that um, foster unequal compensation, that um, uh, provide, uh, that, that create whisper networks that are hard for, for marginalized folks to enter um, are not dismantled. And in some instances, they're strengthened. And so that's a really big thing that has pushed a lot of unionization, particularly in a lot of the uh, digital news outlets that we have worked on, but also, frankly, in legacy outlets. I mean, we just had this huge report that came out of the Times about severe inequity in performance evaluations that was really shocking. And, you know, that's important because that's about professional development. That's about your career. It's not just, I mean, it obviously impacts compensation as well how you are assessed in your job, but it also means like, is there room for you to grow? And if there isn't, why not? You know? And so these are the things that our members are looking at. They're pushing for more transparency, greater accountability. Uh, they don't want to be part of a system that um, disenfranchises their colleagues. Uh, and so now the big push is really to hold bosses accountable for those structures and for dismantling them and making sure that newsrooms and workplaces are truly uh, equitable places where people can develop careers and flourish.
In sticking with the DE&I conversation, I'm curious how some of those conversations between management and unions have been unfolding, especially in the past two and a half years, and what some of the specific asks might be that your union members are, are looking for to try and achieve some of those changes that you mentioned, both on you know the, the side you mentioned of like being on the front lines and covering protests and those you know physical protections, but then also internally guaranteeing that growth, you know, finding ways to improve the uh, performance measurement and, and pay um, inequities, like improve those situations. What are some of those conversations uh, looking like and which ones have actually been successful so far um, that you can kind of point to as well? Sure. So our members have been fighting very hard for contractual language that guarantees them, for example, um, seats at the table where decisions about these issues are actually being made, where, you know, company execs are give a lot of lip service uh, and talk about how they're reexamining, you know, how they how their newsrooms are constructed, how performance evaluations are happening, unconscious bias, all of these things. Uh, but it's not transparent. And so what we do is we negotiate to have enforceable measures in our contracts so that our members are actually at that table and are pushing for greater transparency. We uh, push for and fight for, for example, committees that are joint, that have management and uh, member representatives at it, that aren't just committees where a lot of discussion happens, but then there's no follow-up or actionable results. Instead, what we want are committees that have the power to enact new policy. Um, and so those are some of the examples in which, or ways in which unions, and unions are really just worker communities that have been blessed by uh, American labor law to, uh, to enforce uh, the concerns that come out of the workers' experience, lived-in experience in their workplaces, and when we're talking about journalism within their newsrooms. Uh, accountability is a really big part of this. You know, uh, back in uh, the summer of 2020, you may recall uh, that the Times members, employees at the Times, uh, in response to the, George, the protests over the murder of George Floyd, um, and there was an op-ed that was published by the New York Times uh, by Tom Cotton, that essentially called for an armed response to protesters. Um, and employees across the paper spoke up and talked about how this endangered uh, their lives as reporters, but also the lives of the people that they were covering in these protests, and how this was essentially a deeply un-American um, position to take and for the paper of record to promulgate. And that led to what the Times called a deep kind of soul-searching of uh, the ways in which their newsroom had been blind to the concerns of their reporters of color and of their Black reporters. And they produced this report, I don't know, some seven, eight months later, that talked about how they could do better. Here we are at the end of 2022, and this is still an issue at the table in bargaining for a new contract at the New York Times. We are still pushing management to be accountable and to be transparent about how exactly they plan to address these things. And this, it's not the times alone. We have seen this across the board. Um, we talked 
previously about uh, the report that our members produced. It was done by reporters who are very skilled and knowledgeable in data analysis. They're award-winning. They consulted with myriad other statisticians and uh, data analysts uh, across many industries and at many uh, educational institutions. And they all came up with this methodology that showed that there was deep inequity in the newsroom when it came to performance evaluations, which means that there is deep inequity in compensation, which means that there is deep inequity in uh, professional career development. Management at the Times is happy to say at the table, we hear you. We understand that this is important. But when push comes to shove and we say, prove it, Let's have actionable committees. Let's set aside a fund uh, to correct future inequities in pay. Let's make sure that the committees that are pulled together to address this don't ultimately result in management having the final say, that you have to get our agreement about uh, changes that you want to enact that will actually make a positive difference in the lives of people who work at the Times who want to build careers there but have never felt welcome in the newsroom. And it's that type of resistance from management. And it's not really about diversity. It's about control. And it's about power. And that's why this whole worker movement that has been happening and gathering force over the last several years is so important. Because whether it's diversity, whether it's social and economic inequity, whether it's, you know, uh, social justice, whether it's climate collapse, right? We haven't even talked about the fact that uh, so many of our members are in uh, environmentally precarious uh, communities, and they go out there and they report in the face of her- hurricanes. They provide literally life-saving news to their communities, and yet they are abandoned by um, the corporations that own their newsrooms. Um, in all of those cases, workers are driving the conversation about what is fair, what is right, what is just, and how those concepts can be incorporated into their working day and their workplaces. So there's a few things from that. I think one of the one of the bigger questions I have is when these conversations are being dragged out in management and it seems like there's a lot of putting off, you know, taking actionable uh, responses. And what is the negotiation look like? Like how are, I've seen picketing that can happen to like really, I think to me, that seems like one of the bigger kind of like work strikes is one of the bigger actions taken, but I've seen like insiders um, union print out emails and plaster them across the newsroom. But like, what are some of the, you know, responses that your members have taken to try and shake some uh, response out of management when these things take are, are just being dragged out for years because I feel like that is extremely frustrating. And the it sounds like the idea from management is to hopefully get the employees to lose steam on some of these issues. Like that seems what the, the goal is here. But I'm curious, you know, what are some of the actions you've seen be particularly successful in initiating some degree of change or you know, continuing conversation. Yeah, I think all of those things that you're talking about, and we have many examples of it. You mentioned Insider and them taking over the physical space of their newsroom by printing out 
uh, their emails. We have done reply all actions uh, where members have basically sent testimonials to CEOs and senior management talking about how their policies have deeply hurt them and their families um, and made it almost impossible for them to continue in the profession that they love. Uh, But really what that all comes down to is leveraging the power of our work, right? I think all of the things that we're talking about have led to this point where workers, whether you're in media, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a nurse or a UPS driver, if you're in journalism, we've had enough. And they're willing to do whatever it takes to win fair contracts, to win workplaces that more reflect their values, to win the things that they deserve in order to do the job that they want to do. Um, and so I think really ultimately what it comes down to is the power of the strike. Um, and that's where we've really been focused. You know, we just recently had our first ever strike school where our members, uh, you know, brainstormed about ways and actions that they can take to lead up to things like strike authorization folks and walkouts and even open-ended strikes. And what the thing that we're hearing consistently across the board is that members are pledging to do whatever it takes to win strong contracts. We have more power than we know. It is one of the great, uh, <laughs> it is one of the great flimflams of, I think, modern history uh, that CEOs like you know, let's talk about Mike Reed at uh, Gannett, who earns, you know, millions and millions of dollars in compensation. Uh, I think he took home last year something like $8 million in salary and then another $100 million in stock buybacks. Uh, but what, what does he actually do? All of that money that he's literally getting personally, not to mention the profits that, you know, Alden Capital and other hedge fund owners of uh, of newsrooms uh, are, are, are reaping, the profits that they're reaping for their investors. All of that is based upon the work of our members. All of that is based on the things that workers do to keep things moving, to make sure that there isn't a blank website for the New York Times, to make sure that, you know, uh, all of the papers that Gannett owns actually do cover what's happening in their local communities. And they do it again. I keep coming back to this because they feel that it is their mission and their responsibility. It is not because they are being paid at the same rate as Mike Reed, the CEO of Gannett is. So, you know, Ultimately, that means if we withhold our labor, these corporations don't have the means to exploit that labor for profit because it's all based on our work. And I think that's the, that is really kind of fundamentally what is driving this, both the moment now, but the moment that is a movement uh, that has been building for several years. The recognition that we have this power and that we need to use it in a way that rebalances the scales, holds uh, CEOs and corporations accountable, and demands better, really, frankly, for everyone. And that's what our members are pledging to do. And that, that's really, that, that's the heart of it. There, there are lots of actions that you have read about, I'm sure, or seen um, that kind of lead up to that. You know, we've had, if you may recall, a couple years ago, when we were bargaining the New Yorker t- contract, our members there had a walkout. They had a digital boycott of the New Yorker Festival. Um, there are lots of iterations in which we have to remind and can remind uh, those in power that, in fact, we're the engine of this thing. And so that means that you owe us, <laughs> frankly, you owe us. Uh, and the bill is due. 
And, uh, you know, we've had years of kind of doomsday economic uh, forecasts and and real economic downturns and real harm to families across this country um, through recession and 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 you know rising inflation, all of these things have a real impact on our members and their families and their communities, and yet they always seem to be solved on the backs of workers. Like no one ever says during an economic downturn to the CEO. <laughs> Why are you still earning $8 million a year? Why is the answer layoffs and smaller newsrooms and less resources? Why is that the answer in a corporate structure for journalism, which is a key component of democracy, of our nation? How is that the answer to um, bleed it dry instead of looking at these positions, which frankly, again, I would love to know exactly what it is that Mike Reed does that is worth $8 million for him, but keeps some of our members earning $40,000, $45,000 a year. Right. And keep some newsrooms at one editorial employee. It makes no sense whatsoever. You mentioned having your first strike school, which is really interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about that and, you know, what your members kind of learned through that? And then also, is that implying that there's going to be more of an effort to organize strikes, you know, in the coming year? Um, I know that there's a, a lot of... Uh, conversations happening and negotiations happening right now across the board. But um, yeah, can you talk a little bit more about the strike school and kind of the maybe strategy there? I mean, ultimately what it comes down to is leveraging our power. And I think, you know, there isn't much in our society that in, even though we are all very individualistic and I think, you know, there's this kind of myth of the individual uh, overcoming all odds that's part of kind of the American personality or characteristic. Um, it's not true. <laughs> you know, we accomplish things when we work together collectively and in community and with empathy uh, and even joy, even in the midst of hardship, uh, maintaining and building and enforcing those very human connections is really what gives us strength. And when you couple that with understanding that the narrative around work is designed to have us believe that we don't have value, and you get past that, and you look at that, and you say, wow, I do have value. What I do, what my colleagues do, creates real measurable value, and it's lining someone else's pockets, not mine, not my family, is not my communities. And so the idea behind Strike School was really to kind of like get through that narrative, right? Uh, understand that it's not true and it exists to serve the power structure um, that um, is really kind of big corporations, big media, uh, and that we then, having dismantled that narrative, look at what are our options? How do we change the narrative? How do we change our lived experience? How do we change our professions for better so they actually do serve the communities uh, and, and democracy, frankly? Um, and so, you know, it's everything from 
uh, how to continue to build more deliberate community within our workplaces. A lot of newsrooms are very siloed. The profession itself kind of like operates on this like idea of the lone reporter, you know, striking out and <laughs> tracking down the story. <laughs> but we know that like every story has so many different people that contribute to it. Yes, it's the reporter who's gotten the scoop or who's, uh, you know, done the research, but there's editors and, and, and uh, supporting research and, um, uh, you know, all kinds of editorial and media work that goes into what the public eventually receives as a story. Um, and particularly when we look at how news has been commodified. And it's not just about what's on the printed page or what's on the website, but it's about the video. It's about the TikTok. It's about Twitter. It's about Facebook. It's about all the things that we haven't even thought of yet and how it continually gets repurposed. It's about how, um, you know, big media companies don't even view themselves as media companies anymore. They view themselves as tech companies or uh, entertainment companies, and they're taking news stories and uh, repurposing them as TV shows or reality shows. Um, so part of it is identifying all those pieces and then spending time saying like, hey, that's part of our work too. Uh, and so uh, helping workers to develop the tools to reclaim the value in those properties, to reclaim the value in that work that's being exploited and repurposed. Um, and to build community because bosses don't build community. Bosses make you feel indebted. <laughs> they say, you're lucky to have this job and you'll take what I pay you. And what strike school about is saying, no, you're lucky that I'm working this job <laughs> and we're going to decide what our value is and we're going to fight for receiving that value. Uh, and so that's everything from uh, actions, collective actions that people can take in their newsrooms, reaching out to their communities, being in conversation uh, with the communities that they serve, particularly when you talk about local news, uh, getting rid of the artificial divide between a newsroom and um, the folks that, that they report on and about and to, um, making sure that we have common cause with other workers. We are part of a broader labor movement. And the issues that we're facing, the idea that we can claim our power and leverage it for better workplaces, better conditions, um, and stronger kind of broader communities is not unique to journalism. Like I said before, you know, we've had people from UPS, from teachers, from nurses talk about the commonality that we face in this fight. Um, and uh, I think that that's really, really important and powerful uh, once you realize that we have common cause and that as workers, that's where our power lies. It's in our ability to not do what the boss does, right? Which is to divide and conquer. Our power is in our ability to come together and fight together and have joy together and act collectively together. And that's something that's harder to take away from us because that's ours. We built it, we made it. And now we want to make sure uh, that it gets used for our for the common good. Absolutely. The focus on that community and working together is absolutely crucial. I'm also curious, you know, in the talks between unions and management, there has to be this level of negotiation and being able to have those conversations in a way that you're staying true to, you know, what you are looking for, but also, I mean, it can be really difficult too to to get management to to budge, right? So, what are some of the actual like conversation strategies that you give, you know, 
unions? How are you helping train your members for going into those meetings and and having those discussions? And, you know, the art of negotiation is, you know, always talked about too. Like, what are some of the tangible strategies that members are, uh, you know, putting into practice, especially, you know, lately? Well, the truth is, is that contracts aren't really one at the table. They're one in the workplace. They're one on the shop floor or the unit floor. Um, because that's where the power comes from. It all comes back to, again, this issue of power, and we have more power than we know. And what Strike School is about is about learning how to utilize that. And so that's everything from, for example, recently um, the New York Times tried to implement a mandatory return to office. Uh, media is is not completely unusual, but it is somewhat striking in the panoply of work in that it you know, it doesn't require people to sit at a desk, right, or to work in a factory or in a workplace in order to get the work done. More often than not, you're actually out in the field. Um, And what we found during the pandemic uh, and people working remotely is that productivity actually went up when people were not distracted by being in the office. Uh, And for workers of color, they found themselves less likely to be subjected to microaggressions and things that were very difficult for them to deal with and to feel a sense of security within their workplace. Um, And so the issue of, you know, can companies force workers to return to office uh, has been has been a big one for us in our industry. Uh, And uh, the Times attempted to implement a mandatory return to the office. Uh, our union has taken the position, uh, we believe it's supported by the by the National Labor Relations Board, that uh, return to office is a mandatory subject of bargaining, which means that they cannot unilaterally implement it. It's a lot of kind of like internal jargon, but basically it means that the company can't just say show up and you're required to show up. And it's a kind of simplified way to describe it, but that's essentially it. Um, and that our members are working. Uh, and so... Members organized a mass refusal to return to the office. It was not a strike. It's not a walkout because they were still working and working really hard. Uh, But they just weren't doing it in the office. They were continuing to do it uh, at home or uh, remotely. And um, for us, this has been uh, a kind of a big deal. You know, we really push for and think that as professionals, we are smart enough to know what we need in order to do the work that needs to be done. It's certainly been true and has been exhibited over the past two and a half years. So um, being able to say and to demonstrate collectively that your random, arbitrary, mandatory return to office date really doesn't mean anything, (laughs) it has been really important. And it was a really strong action that showed that we were united in this purpose of having a more flexible workplace. Some people definitely do want to go back to the office. And we think that if that's what they want to do and it's safe and they decide that this is the best thing for them, then they should be able to do it. And we are very eager and continue to put forth proposals at the table with management that allow for that kind of flexibility, that allow for management to like continue to track the work that's being done, right? We've never said that, we've always said that um, this is not about the work itself, it's about control. And personally, I think for a lot of people uh, in management, they don't feel like a boss unless they can see other people working. Mm. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, if that's the basis upon which we're determining policy about whether or not someone who has kids or uh, elder relatives or immunocompromised people in their in their home has to make a determination about whether or not it's okay to get on a subway, to go on a commute, to be exposed potentially, um, not to mention all the other things that uh, have come up as concern in terms of, for example, rise in uh, Asian hate crimes. Uh, uh, and um, people being targeted. It's just, there's a whole stew of reasons why someone may be more comfortable and want to work out of the home or remotely more often than not. And we really think that there is a way to provide flexibility for workers that allows the work to continue to be done, but also recognizes and respects their ability to um, exhibit judgment about when they're going to come in and when they're not, you know, and about the flexibility of their work. Um, I don't know where those conversations are going to end up, to be perfectly frank. Uh, but I think that's an example of a really good uh, action that had a very strong result. In that example, I think there is a good case for where kind of the the giving comes in of like taking and giving and negotiations, right? So like you are also advocating for the people who might want uh, to go into the office. You might absolutely have that, like, I guess, where does the kind of thoughtful uh, negotiation kind of come, come into play where you're still advocating for, you know, this hybrid uh, work from home situation, but like, it, it sounds like there's a way to kind of get what you want while it's still like in the management's mind, maybe like, they're winning something too, right? Like that kind of hybrid situation. It's a tricky topic, right? The the whole thing is like a, a puzzle a lot of media companies are still figuring out. But when it comes to giving in the negotiation, where do you feel okay kind of offering that bend, like that that flexibility? Mm -hmm. Well, every, every newsroom and every workplace is different, right? In some newsrooms, there's a real... Uh, interest in specifically identifying some kind of hybrid policy where there's a certain number of days, for example, that are negotiated over the course of a year or over a course of a month where um, people would come into the office. In other newsrooms, you know, it's like, hey, there's a big meeting. Uh, the company has agreed and is adhering to best practices in terms of masking, in terms of rapid tests, right? In terms of making sure that there's contract tracing so that if, unfortunately, someone should turn out to have been asymptomatic um, and then later uh, test positive for COVID, that there's a methodology that everyone knows to make sure everyone who was there understands and takes the appropriate steps they need to to protect their families. Um, and in other places, it's really very simple. Like the members have no interest in returning to the office because, as I mentioned at the top, they're doing the work and they're actually doing more work. <laughs> and it, frankly, I can't believe I'm saying this as the leader of a union, but they're doing more work uh, uh, probably outside of regular hours, but it's more satisfying to them because they actually are able to concentrate on the task at hand and not be distracted by uh, some of the other things that can happen in a workplace. Sometimes those, those communal and social interactions at workplace are the things that people really want, right? People really want to have that. We've been really isolated 
escalated over the past several years uh, with quarantine and staying home and, and the pandemic. And there's been a lot of fear that's been introduced into just kind of basic interactions. And ultimately, what I view the, the role and the job of our union is to give members uh, the tools to be able to negotiate the flexibility that they need, however they define it, right? So I think that's really kind of the most important thing. There isn't one solution, but the solution that is available is one in where management works in concert uh, with their employees uh, and recognizes that they have a valid point of view and valid concerns and should be equal partners in the discussion about what creates a flexible and safe workplace, however that is defined. Um, there is so much in our life that relies on hierarchy, right? In school, there's a teacher at the head of the, at the room and everyone sits in a desk. At work, there's a boss and, you know, everyone must follow policies that they don't always know how they're developed or why they exist or that actively disenfranchise people, but you feel like you have no voice or no ability to counter it. And what forming a union does, what organizing does, what collective work or action does, is it kind of blows up this idea of hierarchy and says there's another way in which we act cooperatively, collectively, and on equal footing with um, the folks who in the past may have had unilateral rights to create policy and create a different kind of workplace that is more responsive and reflective of the idea of community. Bosses love to talk about the lost thing of community in the workplace, how it's so different when you're in person. And that's true. I think we've all experienced that. But the thing that I always think about is, if you're so concerned about community, then why aren't you actually listening to what your workplace community is saying? And what your workplace community is saying is that they want the flexibility to be able to work remotely. They don't want a rigid work structure. Um, and particularly in journalism, there's no reason why, frankly. Uh, there's nothing about the work that requires it. Uh, other, other professions are not structured that way. And so I could see that there are other challenges there, but the fundamental concept of working on equal footing collaboratively with workers applies, no matter whether you're a UPS driver or a teacher or a nurse or a journalist. Uh, you know, a driver obviously cannot work remotely, but there are other issues that they have in terms of their workplace and its safety that they can address collectively with a willing management. And I think that's the key part, right? Which is that we need a global redefinition of what it means to manage a workplace. We need a global redefinition of what it means to employ people. We need a global redefinition of what it means to be a boss because it's not about telling people what to do. It's about listening and then working with them to make a better workplace. Got it. And so I know we touched a lot on the return to office, which I know has been a very um, important focus for the unions um, that you're representing. I'm also curious about, especially looking at kind of the economic slowdown, not quite a recession, but, you know, uh, inflation is on the rise. People's finances are, are definitely of concern, right? And to your point, journalists aren't in it for the money, but money's important, especially if we're looking down the you know, pike at looking down the nose, whatever the mm -hmm. expression is, but we're looking <laughs> ahead at what could be a potential recession. I'm curious how compensation, uh, raise structures, um, promotion structures, how that focus has been coming into play in some of these conversations and negotiation tactics. I know, um, 
or in, in uh, negotiation conversations. I know the Times recently uh, was talking about the fact that a lot of employees haven't gotten a, a raise in two years, um, and they're, uh, I think, asking for an 8% increase in pay over the next, uh, you know, several years uh, or a couple years. How is, you know, the pay kind of conversation maybe rising up as a as a focus in a lot of these conversations for the unions that you're representing now? Um, or is it not as generally important as some of these other topics that we've discussed so far? I really think that is not so much a question for workers, but again, a question for CEOs, hedge funds, and senior management at all these big media companies. Um, they have consolidated their resources. They have collapsed uh, newsrooms. Adults well into their 40s and 50s are turning to families and parents to help get by. Um, that, to me, indicates a system that is completely out of whack. And uh, the question really is, in the face of an economic downturn, why are we authorizing or, or not questioning uh, this type of compensation for CEOs. And that is the same question and the same conversation that needs to be happening at many media companies and, frankly, corporations across the country. Um, I really think that it's time that we stop accepting this narrative that the only way a company is going to be successful is if it lays off workers to balance its, its, its budget sheets is ridiculous. You know, um, and so... In the face of economic downturn, I think that's the question that we need to be asking. And I think we are, I know that we are at Gannett, we are at the Times, we are uh, at um, Tribune. We are asking these questions and our members are saying enough is enough. We have already been through several cycles of economic downturns. And in each of those instances, we made sacrifices. We made sure that the news kept coming, that we kept reporting the news, that the content that your websites rely on was continued to be produced. And we're tired of it. We're tired of these uh, kind of fat cats <laughs> of Wall Street and in the uh, upper echelons of these corporations continuing to line their pockets off of our backs. We're tired of budgets being balanced off of our backs. We provide a service uh, and it is an essential one. Journalists are essential workers for our democracy, for the health and functioning of our communities. Um, and the bill is due for all the times in which we've made sacrifices uh, in which we've accommodated, you know, dire predictions about economic downturns. We don't see that reflected in CEO pay and compensation. And I really think that's where the discussion needs to happen. Um, communities. Sorry, are these are these then points that are being addressed in conversations? Like are the members really rising this as like a, a top talking point? Right now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in fact, some of our Gannett members were uh, outside of uh, a uh, company retreat that recently happened in New York City. Mike Reed was there, and they were there handing out flyers, pointing out that, you know, you're talking about the long term health of this company. Uh, this guy's salary is a drain on company resources. Though that's money that could be going back into newsrooms, that could go going back into communities uh, that depend on local news and the journalists that work hard to deliver it. Both the communities and the journalists deserve more. 
And that's what our members from Gannett were uh, doing recently in in the protest uh, outside of uh, the Gannett meeting in New York City. Um, It's what we are saying at the table when we're at the Times, uh, where... uh, when we talk at the New York Daily News and we talk about Tribune and how it has decimated what is really New York's hometown paper, uh, going from a newsroom that had, you know, over 100 employees to one that at this point has somewhere between 40 and 50. Uh, New York is arguably the media capital, certainly of this nation, uh, and uh, arguably of the world. Uh, There are literally dozens of huge media conglomerates that have headquarters or significant bureaus here. And um, it's outrageous that in this day and age, they are looking to save money and cut costs on the newsrooms while continuing to provide stock buybacks and uh, additional profit and compensation to uh, CEOs and investors. It's, it's upside down, and uh, that's what has to change. Got it. And so I know we're coming up on the end of this episode, but my last question for you is obviously the process of unionization, especially, you know, in the very early stages, is not necessarily easy for all, you know, employees. Um, I want to ask you kind of for companies that uh, might – be thinking about or employees that might be thinking about uh, starting unionizing in their editorial rooms or that are kind of at least desiring some of that uh, ability to have open conversations with their management? Like what are some pieces of advice or starting points that you would offer to them? Because I know like take outside for a second who, you know, they tried to undergo this and then faced a lot of uphill battles and then had to abandon their union, right? There's been a lot of issues with union busting and management really kind of cracking down and trying to get people to be scared of this process. Like what are some pieces of advice you would offer for those early stages or to journalists, reporters, editors who are being told that this could impact their job security, could impact the health of a company? Like- what would you suggest suggest as being kind of the first few steps that they should be thinking about? I think the most important thing is to talk to people, talk to your coworkers, understand what their issues are, understand what their concerns are. And you'll find that there's a lot of similarity with the concerns that you have. Um, uh, kind of rigorously, rigorously invest in the development of your community and strengthening it, your workplace community, uh, the community that you build with your coworkers. Um, I think one of the lessons that came out of strike school, and I think that we continue to uh, press and impress upon and develop tools around is this idea that we're not alone, right? We do have common cause with each other. And it's really inspiring and exciting and strengthening to realize that while you may, uh, you know, be very well paid at the times and someone else may be earning very low pay at uh, the Daily News, the issues and the concerns that you have are the same. And there's no reason why everyone shouldn't be making the most (laughs) or the top of the line that this industry offers uh, to journalists and editorial and media workers. So this idea that we have common cause, we fight as one. What we win in one shop is a model for what we can win elsewhere. Um, And so I think that is grounded in sharing information 
and sharing our dreams and sharing our hopes. And you can only do that when you're talking to each other and listening to each other. And I would point out the fact that bosses spend so much time trying to prevent people from doing that, right? Creating cultures of fear around sharing salaries, creating cultures of fear around how do you ask for uh, a raise, creating all kinds of illusions of barriers to better compensation, to better professional development, to feeling satisfied and successful and accepted and seen in your workplace, all of that is dismantled when you talk to someone and you realize that your concerns are my concerns and my concerns are your concerns. And that's something that the boss can't take away from you. You know, we had a big battle uh, to organize the tech workers at the New York Times last year. And one of the company's tactics was to delay, delay, delay and drag out and insist upon an election instead of doing voluntary recognition and trying all kinds of kind of underhanded things uh, to divide people. And we prevailed because those workers understood that that was what the company was going to do. And they prepared for it by creating a really strong interpersonal network where they were continually checking in with each other. So when you're first starting out an organizing drive or you're, you're contemplating, you know, how do we start a union? How do we kind of counter the things that bother us most in our workplace? The most important thing is to reinforce the personal relationships, to have conversations with people. And even when there are folks that maybe you disagree about other things, you will find that commonality through the experiences that you've had in your workplace. Because everyone is always dissatisfied. (laughs) Right. Uh, And I, I, you know, I I say that kind of jokingly, but it actually is true. Um, And it is in within that sense of dissatisfaction that you find out that, yeah, actually, I do have something in common with this person that I didn't think I had before. Oh, I actually can share salary information and how I got a raise or who I talked to about uh, getting a promotion. And what are the what are the 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 tricks, quote unquote, or what is the what are the, the strategies or ideas that some people know about and others don't about advancing in this workplace? And how do we make those available to all? It's not a zero-sum game, right? Work is not a zero-sum game. Compensation is not a zero-sum game. There is enough for everybody. The bosses want us to think that if they give something to one person, they have to take away from someone else. But we know that's not true. We know that there is enough money there to pay someone $8 million for a job we're not entirely sure exactly what it is. So if they can do that, then there is enough money to pay everybody what they are worth. And that is not something that should divide us. It's something that should unite us. And that is really kind of the foundation of of any uh, organizing effort. And I would just say also, it's true. Companies union bust all the time. It doesn't mean that's the end of the story. Um, There have been and there will continue to be people who will rise up and say, okay, it didn't work last time. Let's look and see what we can do this time to change the outcome. Um, Again, we have more power than we know. And it's not about a final destination. It's about continually reinvesting that power in the things that matter to us, building community, taking collective action, reimagining our workspaces in a way that's good for us and not good for the hedge funds and CEOs uh, to the degree to the degree that it exploits our labor, right? So I think it's always possible to start anew. 
The core of it is our relationships and our willingness to listen and talk to each other and work together to find solutions and to stand together in solidarity. Because solidarity is not about all of us agreeing. It's about all of us agreeing to stand together even when we have different points of view. And that is something that a company or a corporation cannot do. They can't build that because it relies on all of us seeing each other and talking to each other and understanding that as an individual, you have value and I have value and we're going to stand together in that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Susan, for coming on the podcast and talking about this. This is such a rich area and it was amazing to get your perspective on it. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kaylee. I I don't often get a chance to have these kind of far-reaching, discursive conversations. So I really appreciate all of your questions. They were really wonderful. And thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode.